To begin today, my guest is Barry Bickmore, and Barry is talking about a very interesting and provocative set of researches that he has done. And uh, Barry, you've been working how many years on discovering the restoration of the ancient church? Uh, forgive me, Barry, start again. Oh, uh, this is actually a book that I wrote, uh, I don't know, about uh, 13, 14 years ago. It took me um, maybe three or four years to complete this. I, uh, anyway, uh, it was published by the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research, which is an LDS. Um, it's run by LDS people, and they put out uh, information uh, about the church. And anyway, uh, so they wanted to reprint it, so we we did some uh, fixing up of uh, minor mistakes and things things like that. Added a chapter to it, um, and it's uh, it's available now. So excellent. This- now, first of all, many people just take at face value what they learn on Sunday. And they have no idea at all what the ancient church, that is, at the time of Christ, what did his church look like? Mm-hmm. Oh, so uh, that that's actually very difficult to say, because, I mean, uh, what uh, kind of documents do we have? Uh, just the New Testament, basically, and the, just a few other things from the, the first century uh, of Christianity. And, uh, you know, there, there, there gradually gets to be more and more material as there are more and more Christians. Um, so there, there's a lot more second century material than first century and more third century than second century and so on. Um, but, but you can imagine uh, just uh, looking at how many different Christian sects there are that uh, know about the New Testament and believe in it, uh, and yet they still have so many interpretations. Um, that that's uh, partly just because uh, it's difficult to piece that together exactly, or at least in a in a in a way that everyone will accept. At least what what uh, I was doing in this book was not to try and um, piece together exactly what the the uh, original church was like in the days of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, it was to just look at the spectrum of early Christian beliefs um, and see just what was out there. And there were a lot of different early Christian groups. Um, There were ones that uh, were really, really strange. (laughs) Even even to Mormons, they would be really strange. Uh, And then there are other ones that would sound a lot more familiar to us. There were were Jewish-based groups. There were um, groups uh, of... Gentiles that had somewhat different beliefs, and and things branched out and merged uh, um, from there. But anyway, since we it's hard to piece together the exact picture at the beginning. What you can do though is just start with a hypothesis that uh, you know Joseph Smith was uh, correct when he said he was restoring the ancient church, and you can say, well, if if that's uh, true, then what might we expect to see in this? sort of fragmentary uh, um, set of documents and little pieces that we can find uh, from the historical uh, situation. And in any case, that's what I set out to do, was just try and find not only 
could I find uh, early Christian groups that had a lot of the same beliefs and, and practices as we do, but also to see if I could find any trajectories. I mean, did were our beliefs sort of more common in the earlier centuries and became less common or, or that kind of thing? And what did you discover? Well, well, I discovered, actually, I found more than I, I thought I would. Uh, there, not only can we make a really good case that a, at least a lot of our main beliefs uh, and practices that set us apart um, had really pretty close analogs uh, in uh, the earliest parts of Christianity, but number one, they become more common as you get earlier, and number two, they uh, sort of seem to be coming from the Jewish Christian groups. So obviously the original Christianity was a bunch of Jewish people, and then uh, Paul and others took it uh, to the Gentiles. But there was a real clash of cultures at the time between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so uh, there were all kind. even in the New Testament, you can see uh, all kinds of uh, little problems coming up between the, the different groups and how do you interpret they had they just had a different cultural tradition um, with which to interpret uh, the revelations and so uh, things tended to branch off in di- different directions and the Jews had different problems with the new you know Christian faith than the um, than the Greeks did and so on so the the Jewish Christians tended over time to either just disappear or be melded into the Gentile Christian groups. And so those, those distinctive beliefs that they had were sort of lost over time. But we know that, that they were sort of representing the most primitive types of traditions, though. And so the fact that we can find... Uh, a lot of these distinctive LDS beliefs and practices in the Jewish Christian sort of mix back then is really suggestive, at least. Okay, but uh, this background and uh, the generalities are excellent, but what specifically types of beliefs are you talking about that are extant, were extant in the uh, the Jewish Christian community well uh, for instance uh, uh, the idea that God has a body right that was that was uh, pretty clearly what uh, Jewish Christians believed at least a whole lot of them and which went really counter to the the current um, the current intellectual traditions among the Greeks I mean the Greek philosophers uh, the idea that God would have a body. They, they they considered the material world to be sort of a lower reality than the spiritual world. So the idea that God would have a body to them was just ridiculous. It was laughable. And so they actually made fun of Christians for that. But that there's a lot of indications that it was the Jewish Christians and, and also the Jews of the time, especially the Palestinian Jews who believed that God had a body in human form. The other, another thing is the um, you know we believe that uh, God is one, but in a different way that other than other Christians believe that God is one. So um, you know the main 
mainstream Christians would say that uh, God is uh, three persons but one being, right? And how that can be, it's a, it's a sort of a great mystery type of thing. But we would say that there are three separate beings uh, who are one in will, one in purpose. Um, and that's another thing that that it wasn't just the uh, um, the Jewish Christians that believed this, although they did. It was pretty much everybody except uh, certain people who thought God was was just one person with three different masks or something like that, well, they, who, who were rejected as heretics. But everybody that, up into, almost into the fourth century believed that, okay? Yeah, and wasn't that really the uh, Nicene heresy? Uh, uh, wasn't that uh, put forward or at least uh, given the stamp of approval by a pagan emperor? Well, you know... With the Nicene Creed at that time, most of the the representatives of bishops and so on that were at that council believed that that uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit were sort of subordinate to the Father. They didn't believe God had a, a material body or anything like that. Okay, but um, they did believe that Jesus and the Spirit were support, subordinate. And they actually interpreted the Nicene Creed that way, and so they had more controversies after that. Um, now, uh, Constantine, the emperor, did call call the uh, um, the council and sort of said, "You guys are having these differences, and uh, you better settle it." <laughs> so. I mean, he, he basically forced them to come to some kind of settlement. They did, but different people still interpreted it different ways, and so they hashed out over uh, more s- centuries after that what exactly they were going to uh, say that meant. What else did you find? Well, there's other doctrines like uh, um, the idea that uh, Jesus is Jehovah. It's really interesting, actually. Um, uh, the tradition was that God the Father also carried the name Jehovah, or you know Yahweh, whatever. But then gave that name to the the sort of the second in command as well. So so that's kind of an odd thing. But but uh, you find this kind of thing throughout the earliest traditions. Um, the idea that uh, humans were uh, pre-existent. I mean, their spirits existed before they're born. Uh, that comes both from Judaism of the time and uh, early Jewish Christian documents, and some other groups uh, believe that as well. The idea that uh, the universe was created from unformed matter rather than out of nothing um, before sort of the mid second century or so, nobody believed that the earth was created out of nothing. Nobody. There, You can find some documents that say that, but a lot of those same uh, documents make it clear that by nothing, they they don't mean absolute nothingness. They mean sort of what we would say if somebody says, hey, what's that over there? Oh, no, nothing. We don't mean absolute nothingness. We just mean nothing important or that serves any function, right? Um, so there's that. There's the idea that... Uh, um, Let's see, humans 
can become deified, so become like God. And and you can imagine that that let's uh, let's tackle that one for just a second. Um, mm-hmm. You found evidence that that was an early teaching. Is that correct? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it's and also one that seems to stem from early Jewish Christianity. Now we have to be careful when we're talking about this because. Um, in fact, you can find uh, nowadays, if you look in the Catholic catechism, they indicate that they believe that humans can become deified. And if you look up the um, you know, Orthodox, uh, Christian Orthodox teachings, those groups believe uh, that humans can become deified as well. But they don't mean exactly the same thing by that as we do. And actually, over the centuries, uh, in the early centuries, as people's idea of what uh, humans are and what God is changed. The idea of what deification means changed, too. We'll come back to that point. Uh, You're listening to Drive Time Live, the Mills Crenshaw Show. Barry Bickmore is my guest. His book is Restoring the Ancient Church. It's just been reissued, and it's worthy of note. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's 324. We're talking with Barry Bickmore, author of Restoring the Ancient Church. It's interesting, Barry. Uh, Just a day or two ago, I had a, a protracted discussion with a man who was absolutely convinced that he was a biblical scholar. He absolutely knew the scriptures forward and backward, he thought. And during the course of the discussion, what became patently obvious was that this man believed what he believed and accepted as scripture anything that supported what he believed, and he would reject anything else. How mm-hmm. how does your research overcome that kind of problem? Um, well... I don't want to, to say that uh, you, people can get this and use it to, to. I mean, it's a little too apt to to be using it to Bible bash with people. But but on the other hand, if, well, that, if that isn't even what we were doing. That and I I respect what you just said. I, I'm not suggesting that your book be used for uh, Bible bashing. It's just you present facts that you've been able to glean from ancient documents, a little bit here, a little bit there. But if if people aren't willing to look at historic imperatives, what the heck good is it? Well, well, um, yeah, exactly. I think that's that's what this could help some people, you know, open up a little bit to is, is that I read the Bible, you read the Bible, somebody else reads the Bible, and and we all get different things out of it because we come to it with different assumptions and cultural background and family background and so on. And so so what we get out of it sort of goes through that filter, and it just seems obvious to us that this passage means this because it makes sense with all the other things we believe. But if you try to really look at the historical studies, it becomes really clear that that the way uh, people back then in those places uh, would have interpreted the same passages 
would have been sort of foreign to most people nowadays. So, so let me give you an example um, from my book. So this, uh, I'm going to give you a quotation from Oregon. Now he was a, a Greek, but he was from the third century, uh, and he's just probably the most well-respected Christian scholar of his day. And he was sort of a philosopher, so he he sort of melded. The, he was one of the people that was most responsible for melding the teachings of the Greek philosophers in with Christianity and sort of smoothing out the differences there. So he was talking about what the stupid people believed, okay? So he was trying to say, look, we should believe something uh, about God that is more philosophically sound. And he says, the Jews indeed, but also some of our people, meaning the Christians, uh, supposed that God should be understood as a man that is adorned with human members and human appearance. But the philosophers despise these stories as fabulous and formed in the likeness of poetic fictions. And there's, there's actually a lot of scholarship uh, on the influence of Greek philosophy on Christian theology over the years. And it's, it's really mainstream. It's not just Mormons saying this or anything. There's, there's books upon books, and I, I quote from some of these uh, uh, scholars from other Christian traditions saying, yeah, that this had a big effect on Christianity. And, and for the most part, they think it was a good thing. It made uh, Christian theology more intellectually respectable. But to us, we can look at that and say, hey, look at what he's saying the Jews and also some of these early Christians who were influenced by the Jews or were Jews themselves believed about God. Well, he has a, a human-shaped uh, body, basically. So the way they interpreted the, those same passages in the Bible was vastly different than the way most Christians do today. Um, and so I think we can use studies like, like what I did uh, to help people understand that that maybe the way they're looking at these passages in the Bible isn't the only way, and it hasn't been the only way, even among people that you know they would call Christians all the way back. That's a very interesting perspective, because um, uh, the further away, people tend to forget that Christ took his gospel first to the Jews. They mm -hmm. were the first Christians. Yeah. There's this assumption that, uh, well, gee, if it uh, if it fits into some of the old Jewish philosophies, it must be wrong. But actually, that indicates more probably that it's more accurate. Well, I mean, there's no no way to prove that, right? But but the question is, how how did Joseph Smith keep coming up consistently with these doctrines that everyone else thought were totally weird? but that would have been right at home in the sort of early Jewish Christian milieu, you know. Uh, let me give you another example, and this is an even weirder one, okay, because uh, the, the first one I gave you, the, the idea that God has uh, uh, at least a body in human form, that is sort of weird. Uh, it's a weird belief of ours. But on the other hand, there have been people here and there you know, through the centuries who have just read the Bible and said, it says they saw God and this is what he looked like and so on. And uh, they take that at face value. Okay, so maybe someone could say, yeah, Joseph Smith could have done 
just done what these other people did. Um, but on the other hand, there's there's some examples of just really odd things that that are in uh, Mormon scriptures that show up in these early Jewish Christian documents. Like for instance, so like I said, the Bible has passages where it says people saw God and indicate he looked like a human, right? Right. But then you read in John, say John one eighteen, where it says no man hath seen God at any time. So, are are the Christians now saying that no, you know, that's just sort of a, a vision, and people were seeing something that was symbolic or or something like that? They weren't really seeing God. That that's how uh, other people would normally interpret that. But then uh, the Mormons don't see it that way, even though it. I mean, at face value, that passage sounds like Mormons are just wrong. But if you look in our scriptures, say in uh, the book of Moses, chapter 1, verses 2 and 14, uh, Moses has a vision of God. It says, And he saw God face to face, and he talked with him, and the glory of God was upon Moses. Therefore, Moses could endure his presence. And then Moses says, For behold, I could not look upon God except his glory should come upon me, and I were transfigured before him. So so Mormons, we actually believe that nobody can see God in the flesh, right? They have to be transformed into sort of a, an angelic type of being uh, in order to withstand God's presence. Um, that's That's what that passage says there. So we would say, well... When when John was talking about that, he was talking about no sort of mortal man because we have to be changed to be uh, um, to withstand God's presence. But now uh, you find uh, there's this old Jewish Christian document called the Clementine Homilies. Now it comes uh, it uh, the scholars who study this uh, these uh, this literature that it comes from think that it was probably written sometime in the fourth century, but sort of redacted from second-century uh, Jewish Christian documents, okay? And so it's, it's a b- bunch of uh, sermons that uh, Peter gave and uh, that were supposedly written down by Clement of Rome. Anyway, it says, uh, Peter's talking, and he says, For I maintain that the eyes of mortals cannot see the incorporeal form of the Father or Son because it is illumined by exceeding great light. For he who sees God cannot live, for the excess of light dissolves the flesh of him who sees, unless by the secret power of God the flesh be changed into to the nature of light, so that it can see light. So, so here Peter, or in this document, is saying that uh, mortal people can't see God because the glory of God would basically um, dissolve them. <laughs> And, and uh, you look in the Mormon scriptures, and we have Moses saying that uh, he can't withstand the presence of God without being transfigured into you know, another type of being. And, and when Satan appeared to him in, this, in, in the book of Moses as well, uh, he said, well, I can tell the difference between you and God because uh, you don't have his glory, right? And I don't, so he didn't have to be changed in Satan's presence, but he, he had to be changed in God's presence. So, uh, so that, yeah, my, they, my point is that what ahead. a weird little detail, right? It seems like a really idiosyncratic 
reinterpretation of that passage in John where it says no man can see God. Well, we have these little add-on scriptures that Mormons have, and so it allows us to make this idiosyncratic uh, interpretation that seems to be sort of at odds with the face value of that um, of that passage, right, in John. But you go back into the early Jewish Christian uh, documents, and they have the same idiosyncrasies. So it happens over and over like that. Interesting. If you have a question for my guest, Barry Bickmore, uh, and his research on the restoration of the ancient church, the telephone number is 801-254-5855. Again, 801 801- 254-5855 will uh, give you a chance to ask Barry the question. I think uh, we might all be enlightened by the answer. What are some of the other things you've found? Oh, well, um, I, I didn't just focus on the Jewish Christians ones. I mean, because they all sort of branched out from the Jewish Christian groups. Um, so I, I looked at the Gentile Christians and the Gnostic groups as well. Um, so there's a lot of material there as well, things like the different levels of heaven uh, and other things that shows up. Uh, in both the Jewish documents and the early Christian documents, sometimes they say there's three levels of heaven. Sometimes they say there's seven. Um, but anyway, the idea that they have different levels of heaven is is very common. And uh, this goes back to the ancient church. Oh, well, it, it, it's present in the early Jewish Christian documents and somewhat later, you know, second and third century in, in some of the Gentile Christian documents as well. Again, telephone number 801-254-5855. Tell me where this book is available. Um, it should be available on Amazon and also uh, in, at uh, LDS bookstores. But they they have a Kindle version uh, available on Amazon as well. How much uh, of a change was there from the original document? Oh, you mean from the first edition? Yes. Um, well, there are a few uh, little typos and so on fixed. But the main thing was we added the, a chapter that sort of tied together a lot of the the threads from Jewish Christianity. I mean, in the original book, I had pointed this out here and there, that uh, look, uh, it's coming from these old Jewish Christian documents. But then um, I did another essay, which we added in as one of the later chapters, where I took the stuff about you know God, the nature of God and, and the Godhead and the nature of man and the racial relationship between God and man, and uh, showed how all of that seemed to be coming from really primitive Jewish Christian groups. Telephone number 801-254-5855. In that section, did you cover in detail the uh, the early belief on pre-existence? Yes, I did. And what did you find? Oh, it's the uh, same thing. They. Uh, the the idea was present, you know, in both uh, Gentile and Jewish uh, circles and Gnostic circles. In fact, uh, I think one of the reasons why it was lost is because it was so important of a belief to the Gnostics, who were really strange. I mean, a lot of the Gnostic groups 
they they had these extreme views about matter being evil and and so on and they did have some some commonalities for, with us that I think you can usually trace those back to Jewish Christianity but but uh when you have a group like that that's really pushing a certain document uh, or doctrine and you want to distance yourself from them then that's one of the ways that that uh, you can lose certain doctrines over time as just reaction to other people. Interesting. T again, telephone number 801-254-5855. AM 630 K-Talk, the voice of Utah. Drive Time Live with Mills Crenshaw. 344 in the Mountain West. Welcome back. Drive Time Live, the Mills Crenshaw Show on K-Talk. Telephone number 801-254-5855. Let's go right to the phones. Ray, welcome to K-Talk. Yes, uh, Mills, uh, uh, I thank your, your guest for being on today. I have a, a theolo more of a theological question. Uh, from my studies uh, in uh, the standard works, uh, I find that the Apostle Paul he uh, basically talks, uh, especially in Ephesians 2, about, uh, let's see, it's justification, sanctification, and glorification. And by what I mean is that the, uh, the justification comes by doing the ordinances. The sanctification comes uh, by uh, acquiring the attributes of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's in the uh, fourth section of the Doctrine and Covenants, Second Peter, and in Galatians 5, and there's several other places, and uh, glorification by doing the works, you're glorifying God. And I was wondering how that all ties together and if they had that in the uh, ancient records, and uh, uh, if, uh, if not, uh, if uh, that's a figment of my imagination. So uh, I'll uh, leave your guest, uh, Barry, to So what, what was the last part, I'm sorry? Uh, about, the last uh, so portion is glorification, which is... Uh, the works that you do, the service that you do, is is the glorification of God. So uh, it's not basically you are uh, working your way to uh, exaltation, that you are uh, glorifying God when you do that uh, portion of service. And I'll hang up and, and listen for your answer. Interesting points. Thank you for it. That, that's the sort of issue that is not unique to uh, early Christianity. That's been debated ever since exactly the how to, how to interpret all those things but uh if you look at the earliest documents and the especially the jewish christian documents but but all, all of the early christian documents pretty much um take the view that uh yes you we do need to be uh, justified by christ and sanctified by the holy spirit to become uh, more like him and then with the glorification um you know obviously uh, it, it's all over the scriptures talking about how uh, the good things we do, we do to glorify God. Um, but uh, they also talk about uh, humans becoming deified, so more like God. So anyway, that, that's all stuff that's out there. Which uh, you have discovered again anew. Durrell, well, well, you know, we, we want to be careful because if you really look into what um, you know, the Catholic and Orthodox and Protestant and various Protestant groups um, believe about that. I think you'd find that we're not horribly far away from from 
most, a lot of them. I'll just say that. So, so I don't think that's necessarily say, though, something that, that was totally lost. Yeah, wouldn't you say, though, that modern interpretation uh, by various secular groups, uh, they either don't know that their church believes these things or they sublimate it? Um, yeah. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example that's that's different than this particular doctrine that we're talking about. Uh, we, we talked about uh, the doctrine of how God is one versus more than one, right? And uh, one of the big heresies that started in the second century that they were just trying to stomp out was, the, it's called modalism, the idea that there's no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're just all one person that just sort of shows up and puts on a different mask in different contexts. Um, that's, and, and actually a lot of Mormons believe that's what other Christians believe. And, and a lot of other Christians do believe that. They're just not supposed to. Uh, that's not what uh, the um, traditional interpretation of the Nicene Creed and so on uh, is. Um, it's the idea that, that uh, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different persons, real distinct persons, but they're one being somehow. And, and uh, this is a, you know, one completely homogenous being. How, how you can have this homogenous, uh, you know, everywhere present and so on, uh, being with three separate persons is a great mystery. Okay, so that's why people don't like great mysteries. And, and, they, and if they don't do a lot of study and thinking, they don't understand their own doctrine. And I think it's the same way with these doctrines of uh, justification and sanctification and works versus uh, faith and, and all that kind of thing. Even if there's pretty clear teachings in their church, a lot of people get sort of confused about it if, if they don't spend the time trying to figure it out. I would include Mormons in that boat, too, that if, if we don't spend some time trying to figure out what's, what's what, we can have some sort of cultural misconceptions. Anything else, Darrell? Uh, I just barely started, actually. That was, yeah, he's that a was your guest that was talking. Um, I, I would just say this, that um, I've read uh, the professor's book. It's really interesting, and... Uh, I think that when you consider what the later Christians are doing, is they're uh, they're doing things out of traditions that they perhaps uh, have not traced through the centuries about where they go back to. Uh, uh, and you know, for example, Athanasius taught deification along with the idea of uh, the, the Nicene Creed. So they blended blended the two. And deification, we got to be careful with that. So even the early Christian writings that sound similar to what the restoration is, you got to keep in mind, okay, how did they accept what God the Father was like? If you're going to become gods or become like God or like Christ, how did they ex interpret what the Godhead was like? Were they three in one? Did God have a body? In some cases, like Oregon says, God is the Father is incorporeal without a body. Mm -hmm. and, and so in later centuries, that like during the uh, Augustine, when they kicked out a physical resurrection, you know, settled for a spiritual resurrection, that, of course, influenced the doctrine of deification. And so um, 
Christians are doing things out of tradition. For example, they'll give uh, their people new clothing for uh, on Easter, not realizing that goes back to White Sunday, which goes back to the idea of wearing white garments of baptism. They'll have the priest will have the groom and the bride shake hands during the wedding ceremonies. Perhaps maybe not realizing that that goes back to the early Christian mysteries. My question is, is for the your guest is, have you done any research into those areas of the later legendization process of different beliefs? Not, not so much. I, at least not how I understand what you're you're saying. But I, I just want to. Uh, I think I think we have to be careful too about being uh, too triumphalist and and saying oh those other Christians they just uh, think this and that because of their traditions. I think I think we have to be a little self-critical too and say are there any areas where maybe we do that too? So so for instance, uh, um, you know, recently the church came out and said, uh, hey, we we uh, sort they, they sort of backtracked on the whole uh, blacks and the priesthood thing what, and, and said, you know, a lot of people had said a lot of things before, but they weren't uh, official doctrine and, you know. So, so the point is that we had all these traditions built up that uh, had a lot of Mormons interpreting things a certain way and, and sometimes that needs to get stripped away. So if you look at it from their perspective. So I mentioned before that there are a lot of other types of Christian scholars who will very frankly admit that Greek philosophy had a huge impact on Christian theology, but they think it's a good thing because they think, oh, well, you know, the Christianity was born in this uh, Palestinian Jewish type of uh, area and all the traditions were glommed on there and some of them need to, needed to be pared away to get the, the pristine nugget of truth at the the center of it and so how do you prove that which is the the traditions and which are just things that are being lost well, well you can't do that from historical studies well that, at least i've that, been able a good, to a good argument for having profits though so. yeah i've been uh doing a lot of research in the same areas that you've done tracing through the centuries different beliefs like christ will write track leading off into uh Believe it or not, Santa Claus going to other, other nations. But you mentioned about the uh, the traditions about uh, the black issue during the Council of Constantinople in 553 A.D. That was one of Justinian's uh, complaints: was that uh, you know anybody that believes that uh, the result of premortal sins is uh, going to cause people to have black skins, we're going to anathema. Yeah, so. You know, what we perhaps maybe as Mormons had to do later on, the early Christians apparently, at least back in 553 A.D., were attempting to deal with this uh, belief about the preexistence that included the idea, like in John 9-2, of premortal sins will determine the type of body that you might be born into. Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, similar things come up uh, on that kind of area too, but uh, I, I'm just saying that uh, we we have our tradition, and uh, it's with, without prophets and revelation and so on, 
A lot of times it, it would be difficult to, to say which is which. And, uh, you know, there's all some necessary pruning that needs to go on. And, and so when we're pointing out this historical stuff, we're not proving anything really. We're just showing that, hey, our, our conception of history, uh, it, you know, the, the Christian saga is plausible. Now, did you do, I uh, can't remember if your book got into the spiritual gifts fading out of the church. I noticed that during the second through the fourth century, different yes, ones yes. like Justin Martyr, Bissell, and Methodius, they were talking about how, hey, wait a second, the spiritual gifts, the gifts of prophecy are starting to fade out. We don't have prophets anymore. And they settled kind of like for the dialectic arts, arguing and councils and stuff like that to settle issues. Uh, does, I can't remember. Does your book get into a little bit about that? Yes, it does. I mean, it's not a very long section, but I do go over and, some of that. What, one of the interesting of the things that – what you say? The name of your book is, again? It's Restoring the Ancient Church, Joseph Smith, and Early Christianity. And Durell, it's thank you. We're at the top of the hour, so I've got to go, but I appreciate uh, your call. And, thank you. Uh, Barry, it has been a great pleasure to have you here. I hope people will oh, look up this book and, and if nothing else, get a Kindle copy of it uh, because I think the research is extremely valuable. Okay, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate uh, your being here. My guest has been uh, Barry Bickmore. The book is Restoring the Ancient Church.